We started a series called Values, and we're basically going through kind of the foundations of our church. Uh, we did uh, the mission statement of our church two weeks ago. We did the vision statement this past week. And this week we were starting our values. We have four values. This is the first one, Christ. It's up here. The other three are in the back. And these are the values that we kind of stayed in when we first started the church, that we wanted our church to reflect in everything that we do. Uh, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our small groups, in our, in our fellowship time together, in our discipleship together, in our uh, sharing of the gospel in the neighborhood, how we represent, represent Christ to the neighborhood around us here on the west side of Evansville, and how we take the, uh, the gospel to the nations, which we did this summer, and it will continue to do, God willing. So these are our four values, and we're starting with Christ, which is a great place to start. That the foundation of Redeemer Fellowship Church is Christ. No, no man, no group of people, no denomination, no nothing. Only Christ is the foundation of Redeemer Fellowship Church. So if you have a Bible, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a, kind of a fun thing about doing these, uh, these kind of this series. You get to pick some really great passages of Scripture to preach from. And honestly, we deserve it after going through Daniel this summer. Like, we need some easier <laughs> easier passages to preach through. Daniel was challenging in a lot of ways, and so it was really awesome to do Ephesians last week, right? To, uh, to be where Paul, and, and just to be comforted by the... Even though Paul is difficult, there's some, there's some simplicity to just preaching the gospel and not having to deal with a lot of the prophecies and visions of Daniel. So 1 Corinthians 1... 18 through uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. And after I read this, we will pray together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it is pleased, it pleased God through the folly of what, what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom and demonstration of the Spirit and of power. 
so that you, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together. Amen. So Lord, we are so thankful again for this morning. And as we come to your word, what an encouragement already, just to, to read from 1 Corinthians, Lord. And with the challenge that it presents us as, as a church, as, as church leaders, Lord, how uh, the sufficiency of man that we tend to try to rely so much on ourselves, but yet your word tells us how foolish that really is. Lord, we have so many things to be thankful for, so many things to praise you for the blessings you've brought to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for this church. We thank you for our partnerships with Pleasant Valley and other churches in the, in the country, Lord. We thank you for our partnership with our fellow believers in Nepal, Lord, with Global Mission Nepal. We pray for them. We pray for our friends and our co-laborers in that tough, tough place, Lord. We pray for them, Lord. I pray that you would encourage them. We pray, Lord, that you would give them uh, success in the proclaiming of the gospel amongst the Hindus and the, and the Buddhists there in Nepal. Lord, we, we pray for the things going on in our church. Lord, we have concerns. We have things going on that we ask for your, uh, your, that you would come into these situations, Lord, that your power and your love and your mercy and your grace would come into these situations, Lord, that you would give people endurance, they would, you would give them strength to rely on you through all circumstances, Lord. Lord, we pray for uh, City Church here in Evansville. We pray for our brother Eddie Rodriguez, Lord, who serves there. Lord, we pray for Jeff, who's a, is a pastor there. Lord, we pray for their church. Lord, we pray, Lord, they would be faithful to your word. They would preach the word of God and not rely on other things. They would preach the gospel. That you would give them success in their discipleship. They would see people not just come to church, but they would be discipled in Jesus Christ. They would be, they would be discipled and matured, and that we would see spiritual maturity coming out of that church. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would provide us ways to, to influence them, to interact with them, Lord. You would give us humility in those interactions as well. Lord, I pray that you would provide us ways, Lord, to be more involved in the, in the city and, and, and proclaiming the gospel amongst the people that maybe not are represented in this building. People of the, of the poor and, the, and, the, and the, the lowly Lord in our city, Lord, I pray that you would provide us opportunities to minister among them. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We pray for the, for the preaching of your word, Lord, that it would go forth, that it would touch our hearts, Lord, and change people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So I uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you where you watch the pod listen to a podcast they talked about a book and then you went and bought that book and you actually bought it like because the book had just came out like I just bought a book this week that literally just came out like of like this week and it was so, I was I was so thankful that I discovered this book and I hardly ever listen to Gospel Coalition podcasts but I was just one of those mornings. That I was like, you know, I'm going to listen to this, and I listened to it, and I was so thankful that I listened to it, because it kind of pointed me to a, a book and to a subject and a topic that has I just had not read very much about. And, and the topic was quite fascinating, because the book's title was Remember Death. And, and really what it's, it's arguing, Matthew McCullough wrote this book, and he's arguing that Christians should talk about death more often. And not in the sense that you talk about it with those who are about to die, right? Those who are dealing with cancer or those who are dealing with old age and you wanted to prepare them for death. But not talking about it as something that we talk about on a more, on a more consistent basis because death, if you think about death and realize that death is inevitable, you will be far more gracious or far more thankful for God's eternal life. 
And so I was very thankful that I came across this book. And I want to talk a little bit about it, if I can find my notes here. I've been a morning of uh, a lot of technological difficulties for some odd reason. Probably because we were anticipating new people, anticipating new friends here, and we were just nervous, and that's just kind of how things kind of go, and things like that. So I want to talk about the, this subject of death. And um, what's so interesting in our culture is that back in like the 1700s and the 1800s, it was not uncommon that, that a family would have multiple children, and those children would die at a very young age, right? It was one of the reasons why families would have so many children, because they were so accustomed to death in their households. People would die in the house, right? They wouldn't die in a hospital. Rarely, there were no nursing homes in the 1700s or the 1800s. You, do, you died at home. And so death was a, a reality. People were very conscious of death. It was not something that uh, they were foreign to. Death was always around you. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, movie uh, Mighty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Uh, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. There's just this, it's a funny uh, scene from that movie, but it brings this sense that death just was everywhere back in the, you know, the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. But today, in kind of this modern world that we live in, we are so much, death is kind of kept away from us, right? Death happens in hospitals, death happens in nursing homes, and we hardly ever see death. And with that, we have become somewhat obsessed in modern medicine to prevent death into the last moment, right? Even if someone is, is dying and hurting, and yet we will continue to feed them medicines that will somehow pump out at least another month or two months of life. Fighting death. And even doctors today, death is seen as a failure, right? They failed to save the patient. Even though death is inevitable, death will come. That person who you, who you uh, were able to save will eventually die, right? We, we, patients and doctors alike behave as if death, like disease, can be eliminated. Doctors are trained to save lives, to extend life however possible. And in the modern world, they're very good at it. Through medicine, we, we try to avoid the inevitable. But once the inevitable has occurred, we often continue to deny the reality of death and how we treat the dead body. This is funny, to be honest. And when we're talking about death, and that's quite morbid and, and very negative. But this is kind of funny. If you're able just to sit back and just listen to this, it's quite humorous. I was reading it to my wife when we were in bed. And we were just laughing at this absurdity of how we treat the dead. And like, it, there was a book written in the 60s about this, about how the Americans deal with the dead, and how we make people look alive, right? And they're even in the, in the funeral marketing world, the way that they market their, their, their products, like their coffins or their clothing, like we actually put clothes on dead bodies, is comfort. Comfort is the marketing tool. You're actually telling people, if you buy these shoes for the dead, it will make their feet comfortable. That's, that's, I mean, it's humorous. I mean, why would you buy something to make the dead comfortable? They're dead. They can't understand comfort. They're not experiencing comfort. They're dead. Even the cassettes and the interiors of the cassettes, the marketing and how you buy a particular cassette is comfort. Buy this comfort for this casket for your father because it will make him comfortable. It's absurd. Why would the dead care about comfort? It's dead. And yet we 
this is how we think about death. Even when we have a dead body, we try to make it look alive. We try to give it life qualities that we want for our own life as living mortals. But yet this being, this dead body, doesn't, isn't asking for comfort. It can't ask for these things. The means of man towards death are but a comb-over to the, to the baldness, right? It's just a comb-over. We try to comb over some of these these things, and yet it's still there. Death is inevitable. Death is not something you can prevent. It will happen to us all. It is a foolish attempt to delay or cover up the inevitable. Death is the great enemy of man. We see from Genesis 3, 22 through 24, that the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest the re- he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So death was something that was inevitable. It was something that was going to happen to Adam and Eve because of sin. And because of the sin of Adam and Eve, God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Life is now. You're not, Adam and Eve weren't able to eat of the tree of life anymore. Death is the inevitable conclusion to their life. Romans 5, 12 through 14, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Death is inevitable. The spread of death to all men because of sin. Death is the prize of sin. Death is inevitable. Uh, the loss is permanent and irreversible. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. No solution by their own hands would win them access back into the garden. There was no way they were going to find somebody. They couldn't build a tunnel. They could do nothing to get back into the garden. Where is the solution to death? What is the means of salvation from death? And not to kind of jump ahead, but in 1 Corinthians 15, we see Paul talking about death. That if Christ didn't raise from the dead, that we should be pitied amongst all because we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that Christ conquered sin and death. And if Christ really didn't conquer sin and death, then we have no solution to death. We will die. And there is no hope whatsoever of eternal life. See the importance of talking about death? So kind of a main idea that humans, all of us, have a proclivity towards self-sufficiency and their discovery of personal salvation from inevitable death. Most of what we try to accomplish in, in society and with modern medicine and science is this attempt to try to elevate human life and human conditions and try to prevent death. And we've not been very good at that. We've all... Humans still die. Death is still inevitable. The wisdom of the world is unable to hold off death. So I want to talk about the foolish, the foolish means, the foolish people, and the foolish ministry that we see here in 1 Corinthians. Starting off with the foolish mean. The foolish mean. This is the means that God used to save us from the inevitable death. He starts off here in verse 18 with the the word of the cross, the logos of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He says even that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart through the folly of the cross. The cross will destroy the wisdom of man. To those who are perishing, those who are perishing do not trust in the wisdom of God. They trust in the wisdom of the world. They think the cross is folly. They think that means is 
is foolish, and therefore they do not use it. They do not trust it. They trust other means, and that is the wisdom of the world. But yet God destroyed the wisdom of the world through the cross. Even, even You see this, where Paul is saying, where are the wise? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters of the age? Has that God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Who are the wise men of our age? I'm trying to think about this. We don't really... We, we do have modern and contemporary philosophers, but it's not something that like, you read about in a newspaper. It's not something like you go to uh, uh, the Ford Center and listen to a philosopher talk. That's not something that we do, right? Maybe in the Greek society that did that. We don't do that today. But it's interesting we kind of do because philosophy is it, it, it's presented to us in different ways. It's presented in movies. It's presented in music. It's presented in talk, like uh, daytime talk shows. I think of the, the great, the, the, we think of the great thinkers of our age, like kind of those daytime talk show hosts, those kind of professionals like Oprah and Dr. Oz, the, the, these people just kind of like just soak up all this wisdom, right? I kind of think of a contemporary, uh, one who is uh, the wise men of the age, the thinkers, the philosophers of the age. I even think of Elon Musk as someone who is this wise man trying to, trying to provide these, these tools to rid us from oil and with the hope that, that, that this will stop wars like in the Middle East and other places. Using technology as a means to save society and save the world through electric cars and these other means. And so these, these thinkers are brilliant in so many ways, but yet their, their, their motivation is to come up with solutions to the inevitable issues of our world and our and inevitable issues of human condition, but yet they will not succeed. They will fail. Because Christ, I mean, because God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. The world does not know God in its wisdom. It's the world's use of reason and science and philosophy and, and, and other uh, uh, wisdoms of our age. They do not succeed in knowing God at all. They can't know God. They're hostile to God. The world does not know God in wisdom. And God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Even he talks about the teachers of the law, these scribes, these these teachers of the law, even when we think about religious uh, 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 commentators or religious thinkers who, who create methods and other means of, of, of reaching and, 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 and achieving salvation and all these things were made foolish by God. What does even God say, Paul say? Please God through the, fully, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of the cross... That Paul preached and the early church preached to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs. They demand uh, uh, demonstrations of power. The Greeks seek wisdom. They, they seek uh, thinking and philosophy as the means of salvation. But Christ has I mean, God has presented the foolishness of the cross as the means of salvation for man. And I think about these signs. Now, right, how does that work in our own day and age? Are we demanding signs? And I think of the prosperity gospel as this demanding signs of God's credibility, right? And God's value. Well, I will believe in Christ Jesus if you make me healthy, you make me wealthy, and you make me good. And, and, and this sense of power and this sense of demonstration of God's 
salvation, and that's the, the demanding of signs. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says. The, the power of God, the, the wisdom of God, it's wiser than men, stronger than men. And to those being saved, it is the power of God. We see this in verse 18, that the folly of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. Christ crucified. That phrase, that, that uh, combination of words is so significant. That Christ crucified. It's not just an insignificant two words. They are so powerful in understanding what the gospel is. Is that the Messiah, the Son of God, Christ Jesus was crucified. That is, that is, that is, uh, that is a contradiction in terms to the world. How can the power of God, how can the Son of God, the one who has all power and all wisdom and all knowledge and sits at the right hand of the Father, how can he be crucified? That's a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's foolish to the Greeks and the Gentiles. But yet it is the great medicine to our inevitable doom. Salvation through the cross not the wisdom of man, is the solution, the medicine to our issues and condition. Christ is the wisdom of God because he is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. See, the wisdom of man is attempting to try to save themselves from death, but yet they will always fail. But then God presents the folly of the cross as the means of saving us from death. He is the power of God for the sake of everyone who believes. The power and the wisdom of God for the salvation of man is through Christ and the crucifixion. What if God asked you for wisdom? What if God asked you, say, all right, I, I have this idea. I'd like to send my son, Jesus, to come and die for the sins of humanity. What do you think about that? What, what, what suggestions would you have to my idea? None of us would ever say that's a good idea. Why would you send your son to die on a cross by the Romans' hand, even though he is far more powerful than the Romans and literally could blow them up with a snap of the finger? Why would you? Why would that be your strategy? Why would that be your plan? Maybe you would have a great suggestion, something more satisfying to those who want to sign or the lovers of wisdom. Wherever God displays his redemptive plan through foolish means, Christ crucified. The power of the cross can set people free. The wisdom of man cannot set people free. The second point, you have a foolish mean, now you have a foolish people. And so not only did, he, did God present a foolish, uh, foolish way to save uh, humanity and their sin and death through Christ's crucifixion, but also he chose and called people to receive that salvation that are foolish people. And the Corinth people, the, 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 Corinth, the church in Corinth was full of, 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 of people that were the lowly. I mean, that's why he points this out. He says, don't, don't you remember, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider your calling. Not many were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many of noble births. You know, when I thought about this, I was like, how do we uh, evaluate people's value? Right? We live in America, and in the sense of like everyone's good, everyone's equal, we're all valuable people, but that really isn't true in the way that we handle things. Because like, this is what we always do, like, what college did you go to? That, like, kind of like, where, where'd, you, where'd you go to school? Like, this sense of like, you know, if you went to Harvard, whoa, I mean, that's big time, man. I mean, like, you're a valuable person. Like, what do you do? Like, you went to Harvard? Or you went to Penn? Or you went to one of the Ivy League schools? You went to Duke? Or Vanderbilt? 
you know, for those who went to Kentucky, it was like, oh, they went to Kentucky. But, or, yeah. but, but those who went to Harvard, I mean, there's a sense of elevation towards, towards those people. And so we have this sense of profiling of people, that, oh, you're more important because you went to this school, or you're not as important because you went to this school, or you didn't go to school at all. So Paul says that your profile, you were not wise, you were not powerful, you were not of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish, what is wise, what is low and despised. God chose to save the foolish and the weak and the low and despised, so that he would, so that he may shame the wise. He made shame the strong and shame the proud. This is why he did this, so that no one can boast that they somehow deserve salvation because of where they came from or who they are or how smart they are or how talented they are or what, or what family they came from, which was extremely important back in these times of what family you were born into. You know, even, like, even in the 20th century, you know, who you, uh, who, you, know, you thought about what are your prospects? What is his family like? Or what is her family like? Right? And don't marry someone who comes from a bad family. Don't, come, don't marry someone who comes from a bad law. And this is something that's, that was even around in the 20th century. But yet God shows what is foolish, weak, and low, and despised, so that he may shame the wise and the strong and the proud. You know, think of, um, this is such an interesting, that Paul writes this. But then in the second century, a critic of the early church, a Roman Celsius, he wrote this. He said, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near. For these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone else, anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. The fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, that they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. That was a criticism of the early church. Praise be to God that that's who he saved, right? The lowly, the slaves, and the women. Women were not treated right in the first century, the second century, for a long, long time. And God says, I want them. I want the little children. I want the fools. I want the lowly. I want the stupid. I want the dishonored. Those who I, I came and chose and saved through Christ crucified. I mean, it's a foolish people. Celsus is even saying this. This is a foolish people. Why would God save those people? So that no human may boast in the presence of God. Because of Christ Jesus, you are in Christ, who, are, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He became, because of, because of the crucifixion, we have been called to be in Christ. You are in Christ Jesus. You are in him. This is your identity. You are in Christ Jesus. You, and, and who became to us wisdom. We have wisdom because of Christ. We have righteousness before God because of Christ. We have holiness because of Christ. We have redemption from slavery because of Christ. Not because of how good you are or anything about you, because of Christ you have in his crucifixion, in his work on the cross, you have wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So that we may boast in the Lord only. Not boasting in who you are or where you came from. And think of this, the ground, your foundation is Christ and the cross. There is no way we're saying, well, yeah, there's Christ and the cross, but my daddy's a preacher, so I'm a little bit higher up. The ground is the cross. We all start there. There's no boasting but in the cross. 
there's this, this quote, this kind of like phrase that I discovered this week, this suburban captivity of the church. And um, it's a pretty, I, I think you can write a book on just that little phrase there, the suburban captivity of the church. That it seems like in, in too many of our, our desires as churches to grow, that we seek the white collar because they have more money. We think the homogeneous principle that, well, white people like to go to church with white people and black people like to go to church with black people, and that's just the way that things are, and we should just continue with that process. What do you gain by reaching college students? They don't have any money. All they do is want food, right? What do they have to offer? Why would you want to reach college students? Why would you want that to be a major target of your church? What do you gain by discipling the hard cases, right? What do you gain by discipling those who are single moms or ones who are struggling with drugs and alcohol? What advantage does a church have from discipling those hard cases? There's a lot of work, and what do you get from it? And we, we are sent to, to, we're a church of the foolish people. And the methods of our growth should fit that uh, profile, that we are a church of the foolish people. And not seek to be the church of the comfort of the suburban that seems to put itself way out in the safety and the security of, of single, sim, similar people, similar identity, similar politics, similar all these different things. And say, that's the model of the perfect church when it's not because Christ, God, has saved and called the foolish people in our church to demonstrate that. The last thing is the foolish ministry. Paul kind of ends in, the, in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 2. Why did I, when, did I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come in, in lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Why? 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 Why, why only... Uh, uh, why know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified? Why not use lofty words? If it's persuasive... If it convinces people, why not you use lofty speech or wisdom? And Paul says, I come, come to you not wanting to boast in myself. You're not coming to follow me. He talks about this early in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I, and I was baptized by Paulus or, or, or Peter or Paul in the sense of saying, well, I came from, I, I followed this person, I followed this person. I don't, Paul didn't come with some lofty speech or lofty wisdom he prioritized the crucifixion of cross above all else. And the reason why is because Christ crucified is the means of salvation, not Paul. Paul is not the means of salvation. Lofty speech is not the means of salvation. Wisdom is not the means of salvation. Only Christ crucified. It may be foolish to the ears of the people who hear it. But it is still the power of God and the wisdom of God and it is the means of salvation that people need. So why preach anything else? He says, I was with you, fear and trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words, but to demonstrate of the spirit and of the power, so that your faith may rest in the power of God and not in man. That is so significant because too many people are going to church. I mentioned this last week. Too many people are going to church following man and not Christ. And they will be deceived. They will be let down. They will be very disappointed because they're not following Christ. And shame on the teachers who have glorified in themselves and not glorified in the crucifixion. 
Self-reliance on form and methods is not something that we need to pursue on form and methods, but complete dependence on the gospel and on Christ. I want to conclude with this um, quote from Pascal, the great philosopher. He says, Imagine a number of men in chains and all under sentence of death, and some whom are each day butchered in the sight of the others, those remaining, remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows, and looking in each other with grief and despair await their turn. This is the image of the human condition. That is really sad, isn't it? But it's very true. The prophet Isaiah says on Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on, his, on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken, he will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Death is coming. Brothers and sisters, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, death is coming. And if you do not hold on to Christ, if you do not trust in the crucifixion of Christ, death will come and you will have no hope. And when you think about death, I know some of you have lost people recently. What you think about, think about them because what you think about is the loss. My grandmother died 10 years ago the, yesterday. And I had forgotten my grandfather came over to my house yesterday and reminded me. I had forgotten. And then what it reminded me of? It reminded me of her and the loss that I have. She's not around anymore. And there isn't any kind of uh, uh, existential feeling, well, she's looking down from us from heaven. That is not true. And it doesn't comfort you because the loss is what you need to feel. Because if you feel the loss, you will rely on Christ because that's where the eternal life is. In Christ. So we need to remember death because that's what we were saved from in Christ. Amen. Death is inevitable. Like Pascal says, we're like, we're like walking in chains. When one has died, it just reminds us that our turn is coming. Right. Our turn is coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. There's no medicine that can prevent it. There's no science that can prevent it. Death will come for you. It is permanent. It is irreversible. It is inevitable. And only in the folly of the cross of Christ Jesus will you be saved from death and have eternal life. That's it. And if you forget death, you will forget eternal life. If you forget to remember death, you will not cry and rejoice and praise God that you have eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. Let me pray for that.